This is the Way It Ought to Be podcast with Paul Desay and Brandon Andrus. Hey, this is the Way It Ought to Be podcast. My name is Brandon Andrus, and I'm sitting here with... Hey, I'm Paul DeZay. Paul DeZay, the harmonious Paul DeZay. The harmonious. I'm in harmony, right? <laughs> well, it's a lot nicer than other things I've said. Yeah, yeah. That. What's going through your mind right now? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, right. Hey, how's it going, man? Pretty good. I am coaching fifth and sixth grade basketball, oh, I'm sorry. and I just got done with that, and I feel like I've been chasing cats for the last hour. Yeah, fun. So you're ready to go right now. <laughs> exactly. I'm completely beat. How about you? Oh, fantastic. Normal. Hey, I saw a great movie. And it, and another the ratings or the reviews were terrible, but the Eternals. Oh yeah, no no no, I haven't seen it yet. Okay. I want to see it. Well, uh, uh, don't let the bad yeah rot, don't ruin it from the idea of uh, a storytelling. I mean, it's not perfect by any means, yeah, sure. but there's really good narrative. And here's where it connects to kind of what we talk about is there's a story behind the story. Uh, and I love that. And so when you see that or anybody that's listening sees the Eternals, let us know what you think of the story behind the story idea, because everything we're talking about, uh, there's a narrative behind the story. No, that's awesome. We were wanting to see it and we've been so busy, so we haven't seen it yet, but it's on our list Sweet. and I feel kind of ashamed because we're always a Thursday night before yeah. the Friday premiere people and we've blown it. But yeah, you saw Shang-Chi opening oh, uh, yeah, yeah, the night before. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. Um, man, have you ever heard of this podcast called Song Exploder? No, never it's, heard of it's it. It's one of my favorite podcasts. And the reason I like it is because they go to an artist and they have them break apart a song. Okay. So like, what, what was the idea, the genesis of the song? what was going through your mind? What was the motivation behind it? And then how did the song start developing Okay. until it's a finished product? And I haven't listened to it for a long time, but they had the war on drugs on there. And I don't know if you're familiar with them, but they're just an amazing rock band. And no, they, I've never they heard sound of them. very eighties, a oh, little, little, love bit, them, little bit classic rock in a sense, but they've released two albums, one about maybe four or five years ago, which was just unbelievable. And then the latest one is just even as amazing. Okay, cool. And so I'm a huge fan of the war on drugs and they had the guy on there and he was talking about the development of their lead single. And he was talking about sitting at home and he has a, a toddler that was in like a playpen and, and he's strumming on his guitar and just hits a couple of chords. And with the sound of the kid, you know, and he's just like, he, he just got this idea. So whenever the kid went to bed, he goes into the studio and he just starts, you know, puts on the headphones, plugs everything in, hits a drum track and just starts going with it. And it's just this, this download into him of just, you know, he, he's coming up with lyrics. And so he, he writes about seven different verses, I think. And then he's done. And then he passes it on to somebody else, the guy, another guy in the band. And he said, you know, it just kind of started off with this idea. And then he said, the guy sent him back, um, something that he had laid down, maybe like a synth part or an electric guitar part. And he said, all of a sudden the song just took a twist, like this massive twist to it that just added this layer that was unbelievable that just opened up more opportunity. And 
since then, I mean, and you've got you got to listen to that episode. Okay. It's just right. amazing. But I want to add one more. So there's another one, and it's Mun- Mumford and Sons, mm-hmm. and it's one of their songs off of Delta. And I don't know if you've heard mm-hmm. that album, but that album is just amazing as well. Yep. And I'm blanking on the song that they do on Song Exploder, but same principle. He uh, Marcus Mumford sits down at this organ, and his grandmother's dying. And he just starts like hitting these chords on this organ and he's just wailing, just letting it loose and all of this inspirations coming to him. And then he passes it on to the other people in the group and they just start refining it and adding to it. And all of a sudden, this one idea that started off so small with so much inspiration becomes this communal thing where it begins developing and it turns into a, just a beautiful work of art. That is awesome. And and it's so much better than what it originally started as. While the inspiration was great, it begins taking on a life of its own to where it's just a masterpiece. And I just love the communal aspect of something like that, which really got me thinking about this episode we're doing tonight. Yeah, very cool. (laughs) Well, let me let me uh, like... um go off of what you just said yeah. with that story with the songs. My, uh, I don't really talk about my secret of sermon writing, right? So, but uh, my daughter and I go through that same process. We typically uh, have an idea, uh, one of us has it and we start it and they write it out in a you know Google doc or whatever and we pass it back and forth Wednesday, Thursday, Friday and Saturday. Uh, and it's a collaborative effort. Now they come out completely different because we have different styles, Sure, but uh, she comes up with stuff I would never have thought of, right. right? It's this idea that we're better together, you know, in the collaborative of uh, different voices coming together. She is a young adult and she's pregnant. She sees things much different than this old man, right? Sure, sure. So, but, so, but, but at the same time, she gets... Uh, years of wisdom from oh, yeah, you absolutely. of things that she would have never considered herself. Yeah, because I've made a lot of mistakes. And so I yeah. uh, <laughs> continue to. But, I, you know, I think you're right. I think it's this idea that uh, synergy, uh, we we work when we're able to, to take an idea and bounce it off someone and let them create from it and uh, create something much better than we would have done ourselves. I love that. Well, um, and on the flip side, though, can you imagine the number of moments of inspiration that a person has had where they've been reluctant to share it. Sure. Where they've said, this is mine. I'm going to keep it. This is the right idea. This is the fully, and there are plenty of artists over time that's been just like that. They have band members that quit all the time, but you end up with something where you miss an opportunity, I think. Sure. And so all that being said, we finished up the last episode and we got some correspondence from one of my good friends, Tracy. And Here's what she said. She said, now, don't cancel me for for saying this. We've already canceled her, so (laughs) sorry, Tracy. With that being said, I'm going to push back again after the latest episode. Please know I mean no disrespect. I'm simply trying to reconcile what I believe to be true about the Christ with my human experience. Anyway, is it possible that you are seeing this through the lens of a person with white male privilege? Dropping the stone is never easy, but I suspect it's less hard when you are still in a position of power. As I was listening to this latest episode, I was reminded of the Me Too movement. When marginalized people mobilize, there is power. And until I just wrote that out, I never noticed that you can't that you can't spell mobilize without mob. Are we con- are we confusing stone throwing with breaking down the oppressive system? Ooh, great comments. 
I, yeah. I really appreciate that, Tracy. The feedback's excellent. Yeah. No, and, and so the last episode, we were talking about um, cancel culture, right? Cancel culture and the difficulty that comes into play when uh, groups of people um, can become very ideological and begin just mobilizing to erase a person completely or eliminate their voice or their perspective or their livelihood or what have you. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I don't go back to the episodes and listen. And at this point, I think we, we probably need been to several weeks. <laughs> we need to apologize because this particular episode should have been recorded last week. But what happened, Paul? <laughs> Uh, we a cord is missing that still hasn't been uh, found, so it literally was raptured. Yeah, so we we showed up and we were ready to record, and we couldn't find one cord. And it was a simple like five dollar <laughs> cord on Amazon. So, but it was uh, to your mic, and it's kind yeah, of yeah, the, yeah, one yeah, of the most yeah, essential yeah. cords. But so anyway, we've probably forgotten everything we said in that episode. <laughs> but I I do remember you know one thing that I did say, and like I said, I, I don't go back and listen because I I can't stand listening to myself, and that's the reason. But one of the things that I said is I'm very leery of joining the extremes because I think I feel like a lot of times, and, and this isn't. Um, you know, maybe it came across as a broad stroke, but certainly I've seen way too many instances where the extremes, no matter how well-intentioned at the beginning, no matter how virtuous at the beginning, can very easily become um, ideological in a sense of using power more than anything else and losing the heart or the reason that they mobilize in the first place. So it's like, I, I think that the, it's possible that there are movements that have that are absolutely well intentioned that can be, become very uh, political or ideological and use power for purposes that have strayed from their original purpose. Yeah, well, I think even the Me Too movement kind of got to the extreme there, even though the, the the heart of the Me Too movement was was amazing and beautiful and uh, helped tear down a lot of oppression and abuse. Um, but it can go too far to the point where it loses the heart of the intention. And I think we see that oftentimes in crowds and they yeah. take a life of their own. It's not, I, and I think one of the things we, we say each episode is we don't have the answers. It's not like we're uh, saying this is the only way to process this. And I think that when we're talking about things like cancel culture, we're, we are bringing our viewpoint to the table, but it's not a, um, a viewpoint where we're, approaching it from a righteousness, like I'm right and everyone else is wrong. Yeah. And I think that's so important in this idea of this podcast is that we're, we're here to listen. Mm -hmm. And Tracy, we hear you. I love this note. And let me tell you why. Because I, I know that Tracy is 100% kidding about us canceling her, right? Mm -hmm. She's it's completely tongue in cheek. But being canceled is at the forefront of everybody's mind. Mm -hmm. And so like, I know she's completely kidding, but honestly, every time that a person talks, no matter who you are in a conversation, you have to admit that there is a fear of being canceled, you know? And, and, and I feel like that there's a lot of, there are very few people who speak in a very unreserved manner without always thinking, am I going to get canceled sure. for what I'm saying? Sure. Um, but what Tracy did here, which I love over the internet, was she joined us at this table, 
right? Virtually. Yes. And she joined this conversation that we're having. And I feel like that this is exactly what we're talking about. I mean, we're separated by miles and hundreds of miles and thousands of miles, but you and I are having a conversation. She joins the conversation and, and asks a very valid question of, have you guys checked your privilege or are you speaking from a place of privilege? And in that where I can imagine her sitting here with us saying it. And it's like that adds like, just like I was talking about at the beginning, that adds a dimension to it where we're allowed to have that conversation now and wrestle through that. To me, I don't shrink away from that kind of statement or question, right? I feel like that that is exactly what happens when people come to the table. It provides an opportunity to move the conversation in a direction to take uh, an idea that was maybe inspired that we were thinking about and even adding a new layer to it that can make the entire conversation even better and maybe even all of us grow from it. Absolutely. And one that's the the posture that we're trying to approach here. And as an example is to, to practice humility and listening and to be honest, I have so much to learn. And so when you, uh, when Tracy brings up the, the question of privilege, uh, it is a question that refla- uh, requires some self-reflection, right? It, it, it does. But don't you think that we've in many senses, we've we've lost a dialectic culture. We've lost the ability to even converse. Oh, absolutely. Right? Yeah. I'm going to be get defensive. I'm going to say I'm not privileged, right? So, right, right, right. And then that's the typical response that we see in dialogue, right? There's just so little give and take. There's very little reflection. And I'm going to make one statement, and I'm jumping ahead, but I'm going to say it, and then we'll get back to it. We'll circle all the way back to it, is we've lost humility. Mm-hmm. So... All right. Well, Paul, where do you want to go with this? Well, uh, you know, privilege is one of those things I think that it does require self-reflection. So being honest after Tracy mentioned that, of course, I have privilege. Of course I do. Uh, I'm white male uh, raised in a suburb outside Cincinnati. My dad was an engineer with General Electric. We lived. Uh, Paul, I can't talk to you anymore. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> so and so we 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 were well off. Um, uh, not that I, I think that we indulge by any means, uh, but compared to a lot of people, uh, I would say I have some privilege. Now, what do you do with that is the question of, I think of this particular, uh, podcast, but I think also, uh, we have to be very careful with that word privilege, uh, because I think it can be used as a grenade that destroys relationships uh, but I think it's a really good thing for self-reflection. What are your initial thoughts on that word privilege? Um, well, I mean, Paul uses it. I mean, not to, not right, right. you, but Paul in the Bible uses it and says, I'm going to use my privilege for the benefit, for right. you know, benefit of uh, preaching the gospel, I think he says. Yeah, yeah. And he calls his trophies, uh, yeah, poop. Yeah. And yeah. so I think in some sense, I'll tell you a few things that I think about it. I, I think that if a guy that wrote two thirds of the new Testament is very quick to acknowledge his privilege that it might be a good posture for everybody who follows Christ to acknowledge any privilege that they have. And so I I think that that's first and foremost, which I think is the beginning point of humility is at least being able to um, look at yourself and to acknowledge the things that may be there. Right. Yeah. Um, the difficulty that we run into with privilege, um, 
there are a few things I think is no, and I think it, it's not it's not an issue. It actually adds to what I just said is that privilege is such a relative term that you can be privileged in one sense, but in another sense you're not. So let me explain. So in one sense, you you can identify a group of people who are, say, quote unquote, underprivileged in the United States, but on a global scale, they're very likely privileged. Sure. And so you can run into situations where, um, you know, uh, here's where it becomes difficult. And, I, and I'll give some of my background as well, is that one person calling another person priv privileged makes a lot of assumptions. Absolutely. Right. Does. And so it, it becomes tricky in that sense because I didn't grow up rich. I didn't even, I, I, I'm not sure that I even grew up middle-class. Um, my dad was the only one who worked. My mom didn't work. She stayed home, but my dad didn't make much money. And they, they did the best that they could. We had a roof over our house. We ate every night. And so we're privileged in that sense, but we did not have all the extras. We lived beyond frugally. Um, I think that I did free or reduced lunches. I, you know, so I grew up in a sense where I, I don't think that, um, you know, now that I've grown up and I have an education and I'm very thankful for the path that my parents put me on and the degrees that I have and the ways that, you know, I've still have to pay back the loans and all that stuff, but I've had certainly, um, uh, a path where I don't have to worry about much anymore. So I would say in that sense, um, at one time in my life, maybe I was underprivileged and maybe at this point in my life I'm privileged and, Maybe my story is more complex than just somebody throwing a label at me Absolutely. and just saying I'm privileged. So I think that that's the thing is, and, and maybe this is where I want to go, at least at some to, to some degree in this conversation is I, I really want to hear from people. And, and I think that sometimes the word, and I'm not saying that Tracy's doing this, but I feel like a lot of times that whenever somebody says, yeah, but you come from a place of privilege, what that automatically means at the surface is you be quiet. We don't want to hear your yeah, voice. Yeah, you don't have a voice. And I think that there are other considerations that are more important than just throwing an accusation of privilege at someone. I think that there is a posture and a character and a humility that I care more about because, you know, let's be honest in one sense, I know people who from the outside looking in are incredibly privileged, tons of money, never had a, a care in their life, you know, living an affluent life, but they're the most humble giving people that I know and I, and with tons of wisdom. And I want to hear from those people. I don't want to shut them down. Conversely, there can be people just the opposite of that. I don't know. I, I just feel like that it, it, there's so many different people with so many different perspectives and so many different backgrounds and people bringing so much to the table that I've never considered. I mean, that's where I want to be. I, I, I want to be in a place where I can listen to people and hopefully take in what they're saying. Like if Tracy says, hey, are you speaking from a place of privilege? I would say, well, absolutely. Right. Because um I'm seeing the, I'm seeing the world as it is right now through the lens of a white male. And and that's the only lens that I have. <laughs> right. Right, right, right. And it's like um but at the same time 
I don't know. I, I, I feel like that I, I, I want to be heard, but I want people to know like the heart that's coming behind it. So people understand that I'm not taking thoughts or ideas or conversations and using them as like baseball bats to coerce or hit people into submission and say, you're wrong. This is the way you're going to do that. This, you're, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. And I think one of the, the questions that uh, we have to kind of deal with is how do we let people know of our intentions? Because you just shared your intentions. You just shared your heart. But a lot of people don't know our hearts, right? And so there's a lot of assumption that goes in. And I think that's where this privilege thing goes is that it is a lot of times when we accuse someone of privilege, it is an assumption that they truly are, but we don't know their heart. We don't know their intentions. We really don't know their viewpoint, really don't know much about them beyond the surface level. And that gets us in, can get us into some trouble. That's the reason I've used that word, uh, that idea of self-reflection. I think when privilege is brought up, I think the, the idea of a humble person should be to examine themselves and say, where not am I privileged, but how am I privileged or where is privilege entering into my viewpoint, right? And that self-reflection is so important and really at the heart of what this podcast is because we're trying to demonstrate it on a weekly basis each episode. Yeah, so there's this story I've been reminded of in uh, Acts chapter six, right? And it's the story, it's kind of a bizarre story. The church is growing like crazy. Uh, this is the very early uh, birth of the church. It's growing like crazy. And there's um, a lot of different ethnicities all brought together. Uh, and anytime you have a mosaic of people together, uh, because of privilege, uh, probably one ethnicity, one group is gonna be treated better than the other. And so in this story, there's widows uh, who the early church uh, accepted responsibility to take care of. Uh, there were Hebrew widows and there were Greek widows. And the, uh, it was brought to the disciples' attention that the Hebrew widows were, were being taken care of in a better way than the Greek or the Hellenistic widows. So what were the disciples to do now that one group is experiencing privilege over another? So the disciples reflect and they make a decision that they don't understand. And so they need to invite some people to the table to help take care of the widows. And it's interesting, and I never noticed it before, is that the seven people they bring to the table are all Hellenistic or Greek uh, leaders. And so what they decided to do was to invite uh, people to the table that were outsiders because they needed that voice and they needed the hands and the feet to be able to take care of that. I think that is an amazing example and of countless examples in scripture of leverage, uh, privilege being leverage for the good of the, uh, of the people. Uh, mm. and, I, and I love that story of uh, leveraging privilege. Yeah, man, it, it kind of reminds me how far away we've gotten from that. Just overall, you know, I, I think whenever I hear a story like that, it, it sounds so pure. And I mean, of course, there's the issue and the problem that they're addressing. But I, I love the posture of humility that they take from the beginning. And they're like, we're just going to bring in other people, more Hellenistic people to solve the problem. Because I think that inherent in the story is that there was a growing sense of the Christ and understanding that within the Christ, all things, this mosaic that you mentioned, all these different parts come together to form something incredibly beautiful. And so they were very quick to say the right thing to do is to include 
our brothers who may come may have a different nationality, but they are part of this with us. And there, there's a humility of saying we're, we're relinquishing some control, we're relinquishing some power. And I think going back to Paul, that, that's why I really like it, because I think Paul could Paul was a person who had privilege before with power. Absolutely. A, and he lorded over people with the power, right? Paul post Christ he understands that the privilege that he has in a very humble way actually begins to extend Christ. So I become less, so Christ becomes more. It actually extends Christ into the world. And I think that that's a beautiful thing where people, no matter who they are, where they're at, no matter what their situation is, recognizing their place of privilege privilege and using it for the greater good is absolutely the best thing. I want to read something that I wrote. I I usually don't write anything coming into these. I try to just go with the conversation, but leading into this, I had just this moment of uh, clarity and just wanted to write it down. So, so do it, man. Do all it. Right, read it. So it says one of the issues I've been thinking about during during this time is privilege what it means, what its goal is, and how one who is attempting to follow the third way of Jesus ought to approach it. I view any one of us who are wrestling with this 2,000-year-old guy, Jesus, as being in much the same position, one not being any further along than the other. In our own time and space and experience and perception and socioeconomic position and gender orientation and position of privilege that we all bring, it's incomplete we all stand there incomplete before the Christ, yet it's beautifully, we, we all bring our beautifully unique perspective and how to translate the peaceable other oriented way of Jesus into our lives. So no one's position is the full and final truth. It can't be. We are all just catching glimpses from different angles that all need to be considered. That in my, this, in my estimation, is working out your salvation. It is working out in real time that which has changed you on the inside, the working out for anyone ought not be condemned or shamed. It should be, it, it should be a mutual humility that works for the benefit of the whole. That's why I'm careful not to completely shut down or diminish another person's voice or lump them into a monolithic category to silence them. Let's dialogue and walk together and learn from each other as we grow in Christ together. Oh, man, that's good. Yeah. I, I actually agree with you. You're wrong, but I, no, I'm just kidding. No, no, that's spot on, man. That's fantastic. What I love about it is it's the, the shared uh, humility, right? It's the recognition that we have something to learn from another. It reminds me of that metaphor that Paul used uh, throughout the New Testament called body. Oh, yeah. The, the church is meant to be a body with all people with different parts of the body, and the body does not represent Christ. Unless it's completely, you know, brought together. And all he, these even, he even says in that, he's like, not one part is any better or worse than the other. Right. You know, one may say that the eye is better than the anus. Wait, he didn't say that, did he? Uh, maybe he did. But. <laughs> you get the point. I, you know, I, I think that it's spot on. It, it's amazing to me how, man, Paul's just way ahead. And he gets a bad rap a lot of times, but man, th this guy was an absolute mystic who understood Christ. And anybody who could go from his position of power and authority and privilege to beating himself up, I mean, not in a, you know. Sure. Yeah. But 
Go ahead. Well, he, he wrote something in Philippians. It, it, it's actually was a, a old hymn of the church in Philippians 2. Paul says, hey, ha, have the same attitude or mindset as Jesus. And so he's really speaking from experience here as he writes this. Uh, he says uh, that Jesus uh, surrendered his divine privileges. Mm-hmm. So what Paul is doing is recognizing because his mind, his heart, his entire being is fixated on this Christ that he is following in the footsteps of surrendering divine privilege or utilizing divine privilege for the benefit of the common good. Mm. And so I see Paul sees this in Jesus. Mm. And so I think the whole conversation of privilege uh, for the Christian is to say that our the one that we claim to follow exhibited using uh, privilege, surrendering privilege, using it for the betterment of humanity, right? Yeah. And so I think that's where Paul's coming from, is he sees it in Jesus. So he sees the privilege in us, or in himself, and decides to surrender that for others. All right. So here's the difficult question then. So, and this comes kind of full circle. So how does Paul treat the Me Too, Me Too movement? Or how does Jesus treat the Me Too movement? So we're using the metaphor of the table, right? Uh, And we've been using it every episode throughout. And I think it's a great metaphor for just about every conversation is to recognize that there are people who have voices that need to be heard. Mm -hmm. And so uh, leveraging my privilege is a extending an invitation to someone whose voice that I need to hear that I don't understand uh, to the table so that they can speak. Uh, and for me to practice that humility in such a way that I can learn using my privilege for the betterment of the common good. So in the Me Too movement, I think is the same as just about any social justice issue is to recognize where we don't know uh, and to a certain degree, a sense recognizes that we may not might, we might not know what we don't even know, and we need others to be a part of that conversation. Hmm. Okay. So what does that? Do you disagree with that? No. What What does that mean? So you're saying that um, it's important for you to hear from people who've suffered domestic violence or violence at the hands of a man, or you know, to invite them to the table to hear what they're perspective is? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and again, no matter what the issue is, it's a sense of uh, there's a person that has a voice that needs to be heard. And if I practice that sense of humility, I want to listen to that voice, not from a distance, but I need to listen to that voice closer. And so I would, using the metaphor of the table is inviting those to the table. So, you know, to be a part of a church is recognizing that there are people who have been abused and there are people who have been mistreated. And so what, how do we, like the early church did in taking care of the widows, how do we take care of one another? Yeah. How do we further the shalom of God, which we'll get back to in a few minutes? Yeah. How do we, how do we repair that which has been broken? So uh, you got something else in your mind. So well, no, shoot. no, I think that that's spot on because it's relational, and that's where I think it has to be. I think that that is the most essential part. I, I think, again, you know, for me, I just, I, I can say it this way. Let, let, let's say it a different way. Whenever you look at Jesus, he was very he was always calling out the power systems. And that's the thing. It's like when any group or entity, and it doesn't matter what it is, it can be a church, it can be the synagogue, it can be the political establishment, it can be uh, a group that mobilizes for whatever purpose, whenever it begins acting in a way that is trying to, I mean, there's one thing to be a voice for someone, but it's another thing to become a powerful entity that becomes 
one-sided ideologically or trying to crush or break down another person. And so I think, you know, the question, would Paul or Jesus join, it doesn't even have to be me too, but any ideological movement, I think, to the extent that it's mutually restorative from their perspective, I think that that's where they would always be. Oh, I agree. I mean, you know, uh, we look at Jesus's table fellowship uh, practices. He ate with people all the time. Uh, he was working through those times at the table to uh, to fight against injustice or to lift people up who have been downtrodden. Oftentimes, he's meeting with tax collectors and Zacchaeus. You know, a person of privilege ends up leveraging his privilege to pay back. You know, um, based on his his uh, breaking of shalom, right? And so I think that you look at Jesus, Jesus did call out uh, the oppressors. And so we, as people of privilege, need to make sure that we're advocating for. Absolutely. And then part of that is listening, though. I, I think that, you know, the humility, it's not just jumping on a cause. It's recognizing that somebody, uh, the image of God has been damaged, right? And as as people who are repairing shalom recognize that that is, that is a uh, it's a sacred person that has been hurt, right? And so I, I love the idea of working in movements and working with groups of people, but I never want to get to where my identity is associated with the cause at the expense of the people that are actually being hurt. Absolutely. And and I would also say that I'm not even opposed to people joining movements or groups, but there are some times where you have to be prophetic in that movement to say, wait, you're kind of focusing on this segment rather than the whole, or... Mm-hmm. I mean, we could give examples of different movements that have become incredibly ideological where they're either focusing specifically, you know, if, if it's a conservative mob that's focusing only on uh, left-leaning liberals or left-leaning gr- uh, group that's focused only on conservatives, but they're turning a blind eye to their own. You know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah, because yeah. I think that that's the thing that, you know, most almost not, I don't know. A lot of the times groups mobilize for good intention. They mobilize for the betterment of the group they represent. It's just so, all I'm saying is it's just so easy for a group to very easily sell its soul and become ideological, including the church. Oh yeah. Oh, <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. and that's the thing. It's like, I'm not trying to pick on one particular, we all have to enter into these things holding on to our virtue, holding on to our humility and, and being honest about, you know, if what we're standing up for is a worthy cause, then let's stand up for the victim, no matter who the aggressor is. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I agree completely. I think one of the things that I want to bring into the midst of this conversation is the recognition that we're not, we're not trying to be centrist here. And we're not trying to take the middle road in this conversation saying, you know, we're not going to stand for either side of the conversation. But I I think the third way transcends the either or. Uh, It's not a centrist idea. We're not saying we're we're middle people or centrist people. uh, We want to side, at least I want to side with uh, uh, the, the people who have experienced uh, the, the tearing of Shalom in their life. Uh, and advocate for them and with them. And that's not a centrist idea, because I don't think Jesus was centrist in any way, shape, or form. He was working to repair Shalom, even at his uh, sacrifice. Yeah, it, the, the problem is, is that none of this just, it, it, it's hard for any of this conversation to translate well, because we live, we've only lived in an either-or culture, where it's like all or nothing. 
And I don't think that, I mean, we're, we're probably going to get into it in the next episode, I think, because we've had questions about like, when we talk about living shalom or living to re- repair the breach or to restore relationships, reconcile people, whatever the language we use, people are like, what's that even look like practically? And I think that that question is rooted in the fact that most of us don't have any idea of what that looks like practically. All we've ever known is against <laughs> and tear down and, you know, I feel like that it's gotten worse. I, I feel like that we're at a really bad place right now where people are at each other's throats. And and I, and we've discussed this before, but I think that people are so desirous and hungry and thirsty for another way. But I, I really believe that largely we lack the creative ability to figure out how to do it. And And then even at that, it's like if one person doesn't, but the whole system doesn't do it, then... What's the point? I mean, there's just so much. And, and I understand where people are coming from, but, you know, it has to start somewhere, I guess. Well, I mean, that's the reason we're having this conversation. Right? Sure. Uh, and, and to be honest, I, I don't know. I don't have any answers. All I know is uh, this conversation is rooted by something within that says we got to do something. we got to start somewhere. And so this whole podcast is the recognition in ourselves that we, we got to start having some conversations. So the million dollar question though, is we have an empty seat at the table. What happens when the person who comes to the table is one who isn't entering into the conversation, like we're saying that we want to with a posture of, of humility, but someone who says, yeah, I mean, I have privilege and I'm going to Lord over you and you know what <laughs> tell we do? you that I'm right and you're wrong. And you know what we do? We cancel them. <laughs> no, no, I'm just kidding. I, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the what ifs are endless, right? And it is just about uh, a matter of time before that does happen, uh, mm-hmm. because we're all in different places of maturity and not that one person uh, gets it right all the time by no means, right? So we, we're all learning through this together and based upon the trauma that we experience and are experiencing in our own lives that can cause uh, a lot of upheaval within the table conversation. Right? None, none of this really means that the power systems are going to be upended either. No, no, I mean, no. I mean, we know from Jesus's life, I mean, as much as he tried to undermine the system and, and tried to relinquish privilege and tried to serve the other. And, you know, he ended up dying at the hands of the powerful system. And that's true. Why is this so important? And so I've been wrestling with that a little bit the last couple of weeks. And I think it comes back to that word and the root of this podcast, the way it ought to be, shalom. God has a, uh, a hope uh, that we as humanity would live in family, right? Relations, right? Just to, to live with the idea of love at the heart of everything. And really, because we haven't done that, uh, I haven't done it, uh, that uh, shalom has been broken. And when shalom is broken, privilege emerges. Yeah, absolutely. And so really we have to say, what is the root of privilege? The root of privilege is the breaking of shalom. Mm -hmm. Because God desires people there to be equity, Mm -hmm. right? And people to live and work together and to share together. And when that doesn't happen, one person gains while another person doesn't. Yep. Uh, And not just, we're talking about resources, finances, just in all ways, right? And so I think the the end game is the repairing and restoration of shalom. Uh, and so the reason this is so important is, uh, there's so much at stake. 
Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And and don't you think that it's interesting that whether a person acknowledges it or not, that is the heart of people speaking out on behalf of victims and people mobilizing and giving those people a voice. And it, it's almost like we, we recognize that the system isn't right. We, we recognize that marginalizing people, shutting people down, pushing people away from the table, crushing them with the power systems, people recognize that that's not right. Whether you call it, you know, the breaking of Shalom or not, people in inherently, I think the majority, I mean, there's, there's still the people who are wrecking and fracturing and breaking and hurting and whatever, but it's like, there are people who mobilize and whether they have a, a religious sense of that or not, it's like they understand inherently down deep in their heart and soul that something's not right. Yeah. It's not the way it ought to be. Right. And we and, live in that. Yeah. And, and I think the thing is we, we in all inherently have that sense that something isn't right, but we're like, we, we want desperately to do something about it, but it's like, the ways that we've done it is eye for eye, tooth for tooth, tit for tat, you know, reciprocate. I, I think all we're doing is setting ourselves up for a, a cycle. All we're doing is setting ourselves up for this retributive cycle that continues on and on and on. And ultimately, in my opinion, it, it doesn't change the system. Um, I mean, I, I, that went too far um, because it, there are things that could change the system. Ultimately, the question that maybe I have in my mind with, with it is, is, is it, yeah, I've, I've screwed it all up. Is it moving towards restoring and repairing? Well, maybe we're, our sites are, uh, too big too in big, a sense. Yeah. yeah. We're, we're focused on the wrong thing. It's like the mother Teresa thing. You can't feed the world. You can't feed everybody, feed one person. It, and maybe we just need to start where we are, uh, with the people around us in the community that we live uh, and listen and learn and figure out who has, uh, is being torn down. Uh, where is, where are things, uh, not the way they ought to be in our world, in our community and focus there, get to know the people, uh, get to know their names and their stories, uh, and approach it from humility and learning, uh, and start there instead of, uh, the impossible, because that intimidates me and overwhelms me. Um, I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, whenever I go into my garage to clean it, I don't know if I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but, uh, if I walk in to clean my garage, I just, I, I can't, I can't look at the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's too big, right? <laughs> too much of a mess. I mean, and I lose heart. And so what I do, and I figured this out early on, um, I go to the front left corner and I box out in my mind, this kind of three foot by three foot area. And I'm like, I am going to make this area perfect. Yeah. And I spend the time on it and I sweep it up and I get everything in order. And I'm like, now I'm going to move to that next square. And that that's the way that I have to do it because I do get easily overwhelmed. And just like I was talking about earlier, the system, man, if I start thinking about the system, I just, I do get overwhelmed that, that that's because it's too big. It seems too much of a monster to to tame and so I think you're spot on. I think that the solution is, you know, within our sphere of influence, what does that look like on a daily basis where we are bringers of shalom? Mm, that's it. Yeah. 
All right, man. Good talking to you. Um, well, you know what? We didn't solve anything. Well, <laughs> and I got more questions than I do answers. I, I, I think it's the right. That's what it is, right? Well, yeah, I, I think so. But kind of my assessment is I, I, I don't know if there's a whole lot of people having this kind of conversation in such a tense environment that we live in where everything just feels um, overwhelming. Yeah. And like I said earlier, man, you got to start somewhere and this is the front corner of the garage (laughs) and this is where I'm going to start. And hopefully, you know, the thing is, is that if there's a handful of listeners listening to this and all of a sudden it's kind of changing their thoughts and opinions and their hearts and they're starting to talk to their families or their small groups or their, you know, groups on Facebook then all of a sudden it, it just starts changing people. I don't know. Well, and then, you know, using your opening story of uh, the songs and the roots of songs and sharing the song back and forth and how that, it, that grows and explodes. I mean, you know, I think that happens, but first you got to hand that off to another person. Uh, you got to invite somebody else to the table. Yeah. It has to start with one person. Yeah. And, uh, you know, maybe that's where we kind of land this plane today is to say, you know, maybe who, who, Who's the person who's, what's the situation that's closest to us where we see the breaking of Shalom and can we listen? Yep. I agree. Hey, if you would like to join the conversation, hit us up on email at the way it ought to be podcast at gmail.com or hit us up on our Facebook group, the way it ought to be podcast. We would love for you to leave a five-star review on Apple podcast and some feedback there as well. Uh, we appreciate you guys. And Absolutely. For uh, for myself, this has been Brandon Andrus. And Paul Desay. Grace and peace, everyone.